Marketeers. Welcome to another episode of AEC Marketeer Podcast, exploring AEC marketing and beyond. I'm your host, Keelan Cox, and I'll be exploring marketing trends and answering your most pressing questions to help you thrive as an AEC Marketeer. Hello, Marketeers. On today's episode of AEC Marketeer, I brought in Maury Kelly to talk about negotiation and the power of empathy. Enjoy. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you. For the people who don't know you, could you give a little introduction of yourself? Oh, sure. So I'm Maury Kelly. (laughs) Not the famous Australian rugby player, Maury Kelly. Suppose that there is one. I currently work at Penn State University, where I'm a research faculty with the Institutes of Energy and the Environment and the Institute for Computational and Data Sciences, as well as an instructor of international business here at Penn State for Smeal College of Business. I also work with Harvard University. I'm an instructor there, and I teach uh, negotiation, advanced negotiation and sustainability courses for them as well as executive seminars in negotiation for their professional development program. So that's what I do now. I, I don't think you need me to go back too far, but, uh, but that's where I am now. Perfect. What got you started or interested in negotiation and how did you come to teach it? Well, I think I've been interested in it my whole life. I'm a very political person. I'm very much interested in international affairs. I also am an observer of people, I guess I would say that as well. I like to see how people work through problems. And and I've been that way my whole life. You know, I was one of those kids who would sit and watch, you know, documentaries about World War II and presidential documentaries and 60 minutes and, you know, a very odd young person, (laughs) certainly for a girl, I suppose, at that time, you know, uh, when I was going to school. But uh, I was a history major and um, that just kind of carried on my interest of looking at the world through the perspective of how problems occur and how problems are solved. Yeah, I think negotiation, it seems like a scary word sometimes, Mm -hmm. like the image that it evokes is a little bit scary. Right. In a nutshell, how would you define a negotiation? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people feel that way. They hear negotiation and they suddenly become stressed. Yeah. Their blood pressure goes up. Oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and that's because they're not thinking about how they lead their lives, what they do every single day. And what we do every day is actually negotiate. You know, you, you negotiate with your husband, you negotiate with your children, you negotiate with your family and your colleagues. We just don't see it that way. I was talking earlier about that lens of how I view the world and I'm always watching it. And that's how I think we need to kind of shift our focus and shift our understanding of negotiation to not something that's outside of us, but something that we do all the time. And it just, it is a natural human thing to do. So once we've done that, we can actually see it for what it is. And uh, we often talk about, those of us who teach negotiation, the fact that it doesn't have to be something that's stressful or something that's about conflict, that it's really about something that we're trying to solve. We see two different perspectives or we have two seemingly two different goals and we're actually trying to come together and solve that problem and maybe even create something new, something that's different that we hadn't expected. 
Just imagine how many problems in the world that if we just saw it from the perspective of, oh, you know, I'm on this side and you're on that side, we can't come together. How many things would never have been done? I mean, we certainly never would have gone to space. (laughs) Yeah. If you just view the world as a problem and a conflict rather than as something that we can solve, then I think you've got an issue. But that's how I see it. And that's how we teach it is to try to get people to not think of it as something that's stressful for them, but as something that comes naturally that they do all the time. They just need to recognize that and accept that. And then they start to feel much more comfortable. What would be a common example of an everyday negotiation? Well, one of my favorites, uh, well, I have so many, but uh, one of my favorites is a simple one. And we do this all the time. And I don't know how you are with your husband, but when we used to be able to go out mm-hmm. <laughs> for dinner, <laughs> you know, you would, uh, my husband would say, oh, let's, let's go have dinner. And I'd say, great, let's go do that. And we'd get in the car and we would sit in the car and he'd say, where do you want to go? And I'd say, well, where do you want to go? And he'd say, no, no, where do you want to go? And I'd say, well, it was your idea. What would you like to have? And so you go back and forth and finally, I, you know, it ends up usually in my lap because he won't decide and I'll say, fine, we'll go here. But those are little things, right? You know, where yeah. are we going to go on vacation? Who's going to take which child to what thing? So all of those things that we do in our lives are really just small negotiations, you know, where we're either giving and taking or what's called claiming value or kind of winning, you know? Right. So we do it all the time. Just, you know, as soon as you wake up in the morning, I mean, if you have a pet, you, you negotiate with your pet all the time. Yes. <laughs> you know, I want, my pet wants to go this way down the street and I want to go the other way. So, so they're just tiny, tiny things. And when you start to see your life that way, you start to recognize that you actually have some skills at negotiating that you're, you're actually practicing all the time. We just don't often stop to learn from those moments. Yeah. What would you see as the key components of a successful negotiation? Or how would you build to that success? Well, the best way to build to success, and I was, I was thinking about this earlier, is to plan for it, right? You don't want to walk into any situation where you haven't thought it through. Yeah. And so when you know that you're going to go into a negotiation, you want to plan for that. You want to look at it from your side. You want to understand what you want, what you really want out of it, and then try to look at it from the side of the other person and what they might want out of the situation. So that's that's your first step for anything. And that can be true for small negotiations like buying a car. I I don't know anybody anymore who doesn't take the time to look up the you know, Kelly Blue Book value or yeah. uh, most people now walk in with their smartphones and they you know, will show the salesperson the price that they're getting somewhere else. So you do your research, you get prepared and you try to understand what you're going to be facing and what you're going to be interacting with or who you're going to be interacting with. So that's always the, the first thing that you do. Okay. I know that now where we are in the country in the middle of a global pandemic, mm-hmm. business is still moving if if you're employed. Right. And a lot of us have mid-year reviews. We have end mm-hmm. of year reviews coming up in the future. How do you suggest handling performance reviews, knowing that raises most likely aren't going to be possible? Mm-hmm. So I guess two questions. How would you handle that from the manager's perspective Mm -hmm. and also the managed employee? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, we just finished ours. We we run on a fiscal year. 
So June 30th is the end of our fiscal year. And so we do our annual reviews. That's a great question because a lot of us are facing that situation. Uh, Some people are even facing situations where they're going to have salary cuts. Yeah. So how do you deal with that as a as an employee? First of all, if your performance has been good, obviously, you would want to think about what you're going to ask for. What do you need now versus what you might need later? And now we're facing the reality that that's not going to happen. You're most likely not going to get a raise. So what can you do to make sure that you get something later? So you've done a Mm -hmm. great job in this really terrible environment. I mean, as much as people joke about being in their yoga pants and all of that, it's been very stressful to be away from our normal way of life, from our normal activities, from our space, you know, where we get work done. So you've done a great job this year. Uh, You've really pulled through with this troubling situation where things have been hectic and crazy. And someone's saying to you, hey, uh, you know, you know, we don't have any money this year. We're not going to have raises. So what you do is you make sure that you think about, well, when things recover and you tell them, you know, when things recover, I want what I've done to be recognized later on. And we call that a contingency. Mm -hmm. We also call that that is a strategy known as accommodation. And when you're accommodating, you are allowing for the kind of status quo to be in place with the expectation that something's going to happen later. So yes, I know I'm not going to get a raise now. I've done great work this past year and I want it to be recognized. So in six months or a year from now, I want to make sure that all the work that I've done this year isn't forgotten and that we revisit this based on my entire performance. Yeah. So you accommodate now to get something better later. And that's a really, really subtle but important strategy to use. And one I think that can be very effective, and I've seen it be very effective. I mean, this is in my lifetime that I can remember, my third economic crisis, certainly in a very short period of time. We had a much smaller one in the um, around 2000 and then obviously 2008. But that does work because your goal is to not lose what you've done and all the great work you've done and and be rewarded for that at some point. So I would use that strategy. I think if you're just talking about raises and you want to have prepared information about what you've done that shows that you've brought value to the place that you work for yeah, and that you don't want it to be forgotten. So that would be the agreement I would make as the employee. Right. And as a manager, normally we think that employees are only interested in raises and they are really important and that people are only interested in money. But research shows over and over and over again, what people really want is appreciation and acknowledgement. Okay. And then they may also want things like maybe more freedom. And I've heard a lot of this lately that now that people have had the freedom of working from home, they might like to have more of that later. Mm -hmm. So if you can't give your employees the raise that they want and you can't reward them financially, what else can you do for them? You want to appreciate the work that they've done. You want to acknowledge all the hard work that they've put in and that this has been a really difficult time to follow through and be normal, at least in your work. And then uh, you also want to make sure that you allow them to share what they're thinking with you and recognize them later on too. So keep that open. Yeah. I think one of the things that first came to my head when you said that is vacation time. Mm -hmm. 
that seems like a pretty easy thing to negotiate in place Mm -hmm. of a raise. Right. Right. Yeah. There's a great video by somebody I really like, Deepak Malhotra. It's called, I'll get the title wrong, but it's about an hour long video of him giving a lecture to MBA students. And it's about negotiating their salary. Mm -hmm. And I use it in my classes. And I also recommend it to the executives that I work with, not because it just gives you advice about negotiating your salary, but it gives you advice about interacting with others. And he just does a, a great job of talking to people about seeing the bigger picture. What are people offering you? Yes, the salary matters and that's important, but you also want to see what else is there. You know, can I work from home more often? Not that most of us want to do that right now. (laughs) Most of us are like, please let me go back to my office. (laughs) I want my, for me, I want my big monitor. Yeah. But, you know, what else can they do? Do you have flex time? Do you have more vacation? You know, what else can you provide them with if you can't give them money to make their work, their work life good, to make it feel like they've been given something? So remember to look at that, the whole package of things as an employee or a potential employee, but also as, as a manager. I know I can't give you that raise you deserve now, but you know, you've been so effective working from home that in the future, we might have the ability to, or we will, might as a, might as a tough word to give people because then they're like, hmm, am I really going to get this or not? Yeah. But we can provide you with more flexibility. And, you know, someone was just talking about this the other day that, uh, that where they work, they have to take vacation time normally if they need to stay home and wait for the cable person to come, right? Oh. But they said, well, I've been doing this now for three months. Why should I have to take vacation if I just have to stay home for an hour? I can work from home, you know, answer the door and the person can come in and fix the cable or whatever it is. And I'm still working. So to maybe more flexibility in the workplace is, is where we're going. And I think people will want that once we start to get back to normal. Yeah, that's a good point. You mentioned a few other things that you teach or that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. What are you currently researching? Right now I'm writing about women and negotiation and it's a very popular topic. There are quite a few uh, articles and books about women and negotiation. Linda Babcock wrote a book called Women Don't Ask, and then they did a follow-up. She's with, I think, Carnegie Mellon. Uh, and then they did a follow-up about women. I think it's Women Do Ask or something like that. Okay. Uh, I should have written all this down, but I can certainly send it to you. Yeah. And so the issue has always been that women don't ask and don't feel as comfortable negotiating for raises and for their value, really. Right. As men do. And it ends up playing out financially in a really, really negative way. So women lose hundreds of thousands of dollars in retirement and bonuses and even just plain salary and savings and retirement input and things like that. So I've been looking at that, but not from that perspective, more from kind of the big issue and how women negotiate to solve big issues. So I spent some time in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina looking at some women who came together to negotiate with Congress to get funding to rebuild the city. And then you may remember after Hurricane Katrina, there was a real lack of leadership, mm-hmm. traditional leadership anyway a lot of infighting and conflict. And the women of New Orleans just came together and said, no, 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 no. You guys cut this out. (laughs) We're going to take charge here. And they 
came together, they got a plan, they developed a strategy, they chartered a plane, and they went up to Congress and visited every single congressperson and talked to them, got them to come down to New Orleans, and ended up getting them to fund rebuilding the city. And uh, it was a huge victory, certainly a personal victory for these women, because many of them never thought of themselves as someone who would do that. Yeah. So I've been looking at them and then we start looking at some of the other big issues of our time. So Black Lives Matter, again, we have uh, women there, uh, the Women's March. They're even going back as far as the end of the Civil War in Liberia. And that's one of my things I'm most interested in is looking at how women make change to resolve really serious conflicts. And there's a really great documentary called Pray the Devil Back to Hell. And it is about how the women of Liberia came together to stop the civil war that had been going on there for years. It's, it's just an incredibly inspiring story and one that you know, you look at that and you think wow, they, they changed the world and they saved lives. But you see that playing out even now with, with COVID in, in countries that are led by women like Angela yeah. Merkel and the prime minister of New Zealand. And, you know, they're really, they've been very effective, great communication, you know, solid strategies about what to do. So I've been, I've been very interested in that. So I've been writing about that and talking about just, you know, simple things like what are the best practices that these these women have uh, demonstrated in these really high stress crisis type events that that have made them so effective? So that that's what I've been uh, working on over this COVID period. <laughs> right. Have you noticed any patterns between the leadership or anything yes. in common? Yes. What I've found is that women are very effective communicators. And I think, and and again, I assume the male listeners will be like, wait, what what about us? But um, (laughs) but I'm I'm jostling at the women. So, but they're very effective communicators. They're able to show empathy, which a lot of times people think of as a weakness. When you're empathetic with someone else or with the other side, people will see that as weakness, but it's not. It's a great strength because when you're empathetic, you're understanding, you're understanding Mm -hmm. the other side, you get where they're coming from, you catch on to their interests, you learn. So that was one of the things that I've found. But again, this idea that they're, they're really great communicators, excellent strategizers. Again, the idea of empathy also plays into strategy because you bring that to your strategy and you write into your strategy what you think you're going to confront. Here's how right. I see what these other people feel and think and do. And here is the way I'm going to address each one of these things that they may, may uh, put up as barriers. So they also seem to use symbolism particularly well. I, I don't think that's unique in this day and age. Yeah. But that's been pretty effective in the, in the campaigns that I've been looking at and the efforts that I've been looking at. So for me, I, yeah, I came up with a list of best practices, but it's pretty clear that there has been a very strong influence of women on the biggest issues we've been confronting over the last couple of decades. And I don't, I don't think it's recognized as much as it should be. Yeah. Do you see any ways that we could take what you've just said, this knowledge or this strength of empathy? How does that translate into the workplace mm-hmm. for someone like me who works at a large firm? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we all need to show that at work. One of the most challenging things for human beings, and I suffer from this myself. I mean, I, 
I'm a, I'm a great study right. <laughs> for myself. We get so wrapped up in our own position and our own perspective that we fail to see the other side. We often think of the other side as wrong. Yeah. And we move forward with every step that we take with that idea. I know I'm right. They're wrong. So you put them away from you. You know, you kind of move them outside of you in this wrong category and you interact with them in that way rather than understanding where they're coming from. There's a lot of work that was done over the last couple of decades related to numerous issues, but, but looking at, you know, how to solve problems like vaccines in schools. Okay. And uh, how do you bring two sides together? So you have people who will not vaccinate their kids and people who vaccinate their kids and don't want their kids to go to school with kids who are not vaccinated. And then you have these huge bites. I mean, the conflict is incredible. And so what you do is you try to get them to understand each other by finding something they have in common. And the one thing that everyone in that situation has in common is that they love their children. Right. And people start starting to talk to each other on that level. We all love our children and that's why we're doing what we're doing. We have totally different perspectives on this issue, but we all love our children. And that's what you have to always find is this way to connect with people. Even if you disagree with them, even if you think they're wrong, you have to find a way to find that common thread. And then, you know, you can work through a lot of conflict, certainly in the workplace. Okay. Yeah. Who do you look up to either professionally or personally? Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting question (laughs) (laughs) right now. I mean, I have, I have a lot of colleagues I look up to. I have a, a friend who runs something called the Global Health Initiative here at Penn State. And you know, she travels all over the world. She takes students all over the world to help them see how health systems differ. She takes her students to you know, Senegal and Rwanda and the Congo and things. And, you know, I think, wow, what a, what a great experience for, for people, you know, for those students to, again, see the other side, which we don't see a lot. But that's just a, you know, somebody I know, but people mm-hmm. I look up to, I think I already mentioned them. I mean, we look at Angela Merkel. She's kept the EU together. Right. <laughs> I mean, without her, I don't think it would exist. So, you know, I, I mentioned Liberia and Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. I mean, she's somebody that I admired. The, I mean, this is, these are the kinds of things I would say to my daughters. You know, right. who, who do I admire? Malala, you know, yeah, and the, yeah, and yeah. You know those kinds of people who are, <laughs> who are very distant from you. As far as negotiators and, and people who study that, I, I mentioned my favorite writer would be Deepak Malhotra. And I mentioned him earlier. He's in a, does that video, but he's written a lot of really great negotiation books, uh, Negotiating the Impossible, Negotiation Genius. Mm-hmm. And it's not the usual kind of, you know, you can beat these people, you can use your power, you know, coercive kind of silliness that a lot of writers make a lot of money off of. Yeah. He really writes about things that are significantly more meaningful and, and how to solve problems and work more effectively with others. So, so as far as negotiation goes, he would be, uh, he would be my, my favorite writer. Cool. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? So uh, I am all over the internet. I'll, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Just look me up. I'm, you'll see my classes. You'll see my seminars. You'll see uh, my websites and um, I do all my projects and things. So I'm, I'm all over the internet. Uh, so you can just look me up on Google. I'm on LinkedIn and, and those kinds of things. The Harvard sites, 
Harvard Professional Development Program. They have links to uh, to the seminars that I teach, so people can, can find me there too. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I learned a lot and I hope our listeners did as well. Okay, great. Thank you for asking. This was a lot of fun.